You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning. I'm Jim Dish of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office. It's good to be with you during these challenging times as we connect thanks to Relevant Radio. Every Saturday, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. We start off today's program with a highlight of our Catholic Conference of Illinois program, hosted by its executive director, Bob Gilligan. He talked with registered nurse Jennifer Junis about an important partnership during the COVID-19 crisis. Our guest is Jennifer Junis. She is a nurse and at uh, St. Gabriel's Digital Health for OSF Healthcare. She's at OSF Health in Peoria. Uh, they cover kind of the whole of Peoria Diocese, and actually they're up here now. They have a hospital in the Chicagoland area. And they are operating a new program that I will let her describe, because if I do it, um, that would not be good. Uh, it's called the Remote Patient Monitoring Program. Jennifer, are you with us? Yes, good morning. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for joining us. Uh, Tell us a little bit about, I I think as I was learning about this program, obviously we're told not to go anywhere uh, with this coronavirus situation. We can't leave our houses. We can't do anything. And so, you know, if you're sick, you obviously, what do you want to do? You want to go to the doctor. Um, I think what this program is doing is trying to address that situation through some technology, correct? It's called the remote, uh, no, it's called the remote patient monitoring program, correct? Yes. Tell so, us about it. Uh, as the first uh, cases of COVID-19 were reported in the U.S., so we really started thinking about ways uh, to care for individuals with the virus without overall overwhelming our hospitals and other healthcare facilities. So, our number one goal was really to help people stay in their homes mm-hmm. uh, to decrease exposure within the communities and to healthcare workers. And so, what we really came up with was a multi-pronged digital approach. And the first thing we did is we put our digital assistant, Claire, which is a chat bot, chat bot out on our website so that those who were worried or mildly symptomatic could get quick answers to their questions. Uh, we also had a free texting option that we provided to our communities uh, called COVID Companion, where uh, guidance and education on the virus was offered. And then we quickly set up our 24-7 nurse triage hotline. And so that phone number is one eight three three O S F No K N O W or six seven three five six six nine. And so that we would be available for the community as they started to become symptomatic and be able to answer any of their questions and to really ease their fears. How's it going? It's going really well. So we've had over 35,000 interactions huh. with our digital assistant, Claire, and we've had over 15,000 calls to the nurse triage. Wow. Uh, we did expand the nurse triage as, as uh, we started to see sicker patients calling in to where they can also get a virtual visit by a provider. And what's a virtual visit? So that is much like as many um, know how to use FaceTime. Um, It's similar to that, except you have a nurse practitioner or a physician on one end, and uh, they walk you through uh, how Hmm. to download the software on your phone, and then you can uh, 
they can see you just like FaceTime mm-hmm. and you can see them and mm-hmm. they can uh, really look and see um, how you're doing. So you said 35,000 uh, hits with, uh, is it Claire? And then 15,000 callers? Yep. That's 50,000 yep. people. Wow. Yes. And that's since and April then, 11th? Yeah. That is, no, that's really since uh, the middle of May, March. Um, okay. Things started right. to heat up. And then um, since the middle of April, we added a whole nother layer to the program. So as... Uh, our communities are calling into the nurse hotline. Now we're able to offer them a pandemic health worker, which is based off the community health worker um, model where uh, we can actually digitally uh, send um, messages mm-hmm. every day, a couple times a day, visit with patients virtually in their homes mm-hmm. uh, through a pandemic health worker. So if they need to be isolated in their home, uh, then they are enrolled in the program, and uh, we send out a package to them. Okay. And it has some health apps on a tablet, a thermometer, some hand sanitizer, and they're able to then be assigned a pandemic health worker, and they're able to communicate with them over the next 14, 15 days as they stay in their home, and we monitor their symptoms. If their symptoms start to escalate, we give them more equipment to be monitored at home. We may give them a blood pressure cuff or um, something to track their respiratory rate or their heart rate, and then we're able to monitor them with our team of clinicians uh, here in Peoria. And what has been the experience so far? Have you had to admit many of the people who have contacted you, or is it mostly things that that you can uh, then help them stay in their home and help them get better at home? Is is that how, how does that work? I mean, so we have currently we have four hundred and six clients in our pandemic health worker program that have been assigned a pandemic health worker through our eight geographical locations. Okay. And um, right now, they uh, we just started uh, two weeks ago, so they're there. And then we have uh, 14 that are in our acute COVID at home, which means they've moved to that next level of care. So really our goal is to prevent them from having to go into the hospital. Sure, sure. And um, and is it is it true? Are you the designated uh, remote patient monitoring program for like? Is it a certain area? There, there's more than one, right? You're 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 the mid middle part of the state. Is that correct? Yep, we cover Central Illinois okay. as well as Rockford and then Evergreen Park. Yeah, because that Evergreen Park is where uh, what is it? Little Company of Mary is the hospital yeah. we just just merged with, right? Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay, so it's where you're located. That's interesting. And so, um, at, at different uh, hospitals or entities have are responsible for different parts of the state. Is that the way we're doing it? Yeah. So okay. we began as we started to our sisters have made a huge investment in innovation and digital health over the last several years, and so we really felt like we were very much positioned to care for. Uh, COVID-19 patients through digital mm-hmm. means and through innovative solutions mm-hmm. due to that investment. And so we started talking to the state. We started talking to federal officials, really offering that we felt like we had something that could really help keep patients sure. in their homes and decrease their anxiety and so minimizing that exposure. And so we did partner. We were the first to partner with the 
uh, Illinois Department of Healthcare and Family Services. And since then, uh, they have partnered with Southern Illinois in the southern portion of the state and then uh, advocate for the northern part okay. of the state. This has to be relieve a tremendous uh, um, workload on on the acute care system. I would th- I would hope. Yes, that really was one of the main goals uh, because as we started seeing the cases in New York and on the West Coast, it really was about managing capacity at right, hospitals. Right. And so, really trying to prepare for that capacity within our hospital systems and be very proactive and, and try and prevent that overloading of the capacity and the overloading of exposure to our healthcare workers. Yeah. And uh, so overall, it's, it's going pretty well. And, and is, the, is the plan to have this throughout the duration of the COVID uh, situation? Um, I, I would think that perhaps this is something you could augment to uh, address other other situations, hopefully soon when this uh, coronavirus situation dissipates. Yeah, our our mission at OSF Healthcare is really uh, to care for those most vulnerable patients, right. and so in our community. And so we really were already looking um, to develop a community health worker program. Yeah, and we had not done that yet, but really were able <laughs> to pivot to pivot really quickly when COVID-19 came to uh, do the pandemic health worker. So we really feel like there's an opportunity uh, after COVID to really look at the things that worked really well, uh, how we could continue to get better with this digitally enabled uh, community health worker. Yeah, I I could see how this this might help. You know, certain situations, uh, um, you could expand this and to help uh, a lot of different uh, types of inquiries that, that you have. Um, I could see this working for a lot of, especially as people become more comfortable with the technology. Absolutely. We've found that our clients, uh, we have a really robust playbook, a guidebook that has pictures and then um, our pandemic health workers walk them through the applications that they'll be using. One is for um, emotional well-being because we know that part of of the Mm -hmm. um, problem with social isolation is really that anxiety, depression, loneliness. And so there is a an app, an application for that, um, that they are able to download and walk through. And our pandemic health worker helps them use that. Jill, thanks for taking some time this morning. This is very uh, creative. And uh, boy, I can see how it really does help, uh, help address the situation that we're dealing with, where so many people uh, are, are taxing the healthcare system. I can see how this would be very effective. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks to Jennifer and to all our healthcare workers and first responders for their selfless work during our current health crisis. Catholic Charities continues to meet the needs of the vulnerable throughout the COVID-19 pandemic. Co-hosts of our Voice of Charity program, Marie Jokum and Bridget Murphy, visited with a couple of guests about how Catholic Charities is responding to the needs of its clients during these challenging times. and welcome to the Voice of Charity. This is Bridget Murphy, Director of Communications for Catholic Charities 
filling in for Michael Bear, but we have a special guest in the studio today. She's not a guest at all. She's our <laughs> rightful host. Welcome back, Marie Jokum. Thank you. It's so nice to be back with you, Bridget. Um, it's just good to good to be able to talk with all of you and get back to chatting about the great things Catholic Charities is doing all the time, but particularly during um, this interesting time in our world. As you know, since March, as the effects of the coronavirus became more significant in all our lives, Catholic Charities staff members have been working tirelessly to ensure that basic services and programs continue uninterrupted, uninterrupted for our most vulnerable clients. That's right. And part of the reason we've missed you for a couple weeks is that Marie, along with a couple of our guests this morning, has been overseeing a lot of our food provision. Catholic Charities does a great deal of food service, including Suppers for the homeless, food pantries, uh, home-delivered meals for seniors, all of which has been ramped up during the pandemic. So we're glad to have you back, but we know you've been doing important work. Absolutely. And we, um, you know, we're going to have a show at some point where we will talk about all the crazy awesome things that have been happening with our supper programs throughout Cook and Lake County. But today we're going to talk to two amazing women who've had a great deal of knowledge and experience to share with us on two of our biggest food programs, our food pantries and our women, infant and children or WIC stores. So please welcome Sharon Tillman, who is the department director for our family stabilization service. And Talay Vanek, who's assistant director of our special supplemental food department. Welcome, Sharon and Tal. Thank you so Thank much, you. Marie. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. Great. Sharon and Tal, we're going to have you both um, give our listeners an overview of your areas of responsibility. But, um, Sharon, why don't we start with you? Okay. Well, first of all, I direct the Family Stabilization Services Department. All that means is that uh, we actually provide services to families and individuals who experience some kind of an emergency or some kind of a crisis or some event that has caused them to be in need of their basic human needs. We're talking food, clothes, shelter, that kind of thing. Um, when people, most people who come to us are in need of food, and at that point, we take that as an opportunity to be able to give more of a holistic assessment and be able to see what the other issues are. We are well aware that if people are coming in from food for food, there are other issues as well. We operate eight food pantries in Cook and suburban Cook County, and we also have another pantry actually in Lake County. Um, those food pantries, along with we also have clothing rooms in most of those uh, pantries. We offer um, assistance with SNAP applications and uh, helping folks to complete those applications to get SNAP benefits as well as medical benefits. We additionally offer um, uh, assistance with, with uh, workforce development for SNAP clients who are those single SNAP clients. And uh, we also offer financial assistance with, to help with rent and, uh, rent and mortgage and uh, transportation and utilities kind of thing. So we've got a wide array of services um, that we can offer folks who are really just needing that basic kind of help. 
Sharon, and that's one of the things I think is I've always thought and still think uh, that's so great about your area is you are in many ways the entry point um, to not only folks who are in major crisis, but also to other services. And I've um, witnessed firsthand your workers kind of helping walk through that holistic approach. So I think it's what you do is so crucial to Catholic Charities. Can you share with us how family stabilization services have been affected by COVID-19? Because I know they have. Oh, absolutely. You know, this has been uh, the most unusual time ever. And so we we at Family Stave have to do some of the same things that everybody else has to do. We have to figure out new ways to do things. We've had to figure out how to be able to continue to serve people and get those needs met in more of a virtual kind of way. And how do you do that? I mean, and that's particularly difficult for us because our job is connecting with people and sitting down and kind of having that one-on-one. So we've had to make some changes. We've had to try to figure out how to give food without having as much interaction. So we've got things going on in some pantries like drive-through pantries. Uh, We've had to kind of mark off things and say, okay, so we got to keep our crowd about six feet apart. We're we're going against uh, or going, we're finding another method uh, that also allows our clients, whereas most of our clients would generally come in and make their own choices of food. We've had to try to uh, now prepackage the food and uh, give out those bags, you know, as they are. We have kind of a uniform bag that we give out that's a nutritious bag and has a variety of foods in them. I mean, so there have been some real changes that have had to happen uh, that are really different for us in the pantry. But there are also changes that have had to happen when we're about to give out or giving out other services comes down to financial assistance. We've had to learn how to do things more virtually. Uh, We've had to learn how to uh, accept uh, documents by way of email and and learn how to communicate with our clients more by phone than than, um, face-to-face in order to keep everybody safe. Um, In our clothing rooms, unfortunately, our clients don't have as much opportunity to be able to come in and do their own choices. We've had to kind of give it to them. And, and the most unfortunate thing is that due to a lot of uh, decisions actually that were made by the state as well, we've had to kind of suspend our, um, our, our, our workforce program mm-hmm. for just a little while. Now, we've tried to keep in touch with our clients, but we've had to suspend some of those services for a little while to try to get back on course again. Yeah, that's. I, I think it's been incredible to witness kind of the creativity and the um thinking on the ground that your workers who are the frontline staff do. Can you tell us, are you seeing many new families in the pantries and what are you hearing from clients amidst the pandemic? Well, we're certainly seeing more families. I mean, we the, the numbers here, especially in the pantries, we're serving about 47% more, four sevens, 47% more people than we would have served um, this time of year. You know, generally this time of year, spring starts to come and folks are maybe getting back tax uh, credits and that kind of thing, uh, then we, we kind of slow down a little bit this time of year. But that certainly has not been the case this year. We have seen folks coming in and folks that we haven't seen before, and we're hearing people just tell us just how grateful they are that we are open. Um, I do understand that quite a few pantries here in Chicago have closed, but we have remained open, and we've been open to our clients. We see 
um, moms coming in and aunts coming in and grandmothers. So it's generally the women who are coming to the programs and looking for food for their families. So, you know, whatever they can get, they are most grateful for. But we have tried really, really hard to maintain, uh, you know, uh, uh, a bag of food that can really help their family to sustain themselves for about a week's time. And they're welcome to come back as often as possible during this time. But uh, it's been, in a lot of ways, you know, it's, it's been the most difficult time. But we have seen more smiles and more thank yous probably than we have really seen in quite some time. And there's a lot of folks coming in. So trying to give them that attention and trying to get them through that line with the smaller staff. We have to be careful about keeping our staff safe and making sure that we've got, you know, the kind of distance that we need uh, to keep the staff safe and the kind of distance that we need to keep our clients safe. But uh, those clients are asking those same questions, and the new clients are really trying to figure out, you know, just what we are offering. And so they have a lot of questions, and we're kind of having to have them to call back um, because we have to kind of keep things moving. Sure. But uh, it's been a robust time. Yeah. I was at a pantry on the west side, um, and a woman came in, and uh, I think she had trouble with the door at first, but then it opened, and she said, hallelujah, thank God you're here. And uh, I think that that must be the sentiment. Sharon, you know, as as things are evolving here, I know, you know, you have staff who's working really hard. There are volunteers who are working hard alongside your staff. But what does your department need? What do these food pantries need right now more than anything else to better serve your, our, your, our clients? Well, right now, we honestly need food. Uh, this has been uh, another one of those things that's so unusual about this time. I know you've been hearing a lot on the news about the food supply chain being kind of stifled. And, you know, you've been hearing the sad pieces of a lot of food that's just going to waste because it cannot be converted to uh, foods that we can use, like in grocery stores and in pantries. And so it's been really, really difficult to find really basic kind of things like uh, canned vegetables and cereals and that kind of thing. So we we really could use food uh, right now to be able to serve these numbers of folks that can just continues to increase and continues to grow. Um, we also need folks to come out and continue to volunteer. We already have a small staff, and as we continue to see as many people as we're seeing, we need your help. Um, now, folks have been wonderful. They have been absolutely wonderful, and they have given their time to us and, and, and continue to try to help us to take care of our clients. But we always could use more volunteer help. We could use folks to pack bags. We could use folks to help us to sort through foods. We could use folks to help us to kind of keep a little – uh, you know, keep the line going and, and the flow going. So absolutely, and I think you know to add to Sharon's point, if. And we'll we'll repeat this again at the end of the show. But if you are interested in donating um, and or volunteering, please visit our website, www.catholiccharities.net, and you will see the food that's specifically needed in the food pantries and also where is a good spot to drop them off. Tal, we have not forgotten about you. <laughs> Don't you worry. No I know both of you. We could do six shows on both of you. Um, so, Tal, I know that we have been operating our Women, Infant, and Children's Centers for more than 20 years to help provide food and nutrition education to mothers and their children. Can you share with our listeners what the goals of the WIC centers are? Yes. So our whole goal at the WIC Food and Nutrition Centers is to tailor the shopping experience specifically for the WIC population. So everything in the store is WIC approved. And we provide also nutrition education and wraparound services. So our first goal is 
is to have the items available that are listed on the mother's coupon. So it's an easy grab and grow experience. Our second goal is to take those foods in which they get in the package, so a can of beans, maybe some frozen fruit, fresh vegetables, and tailor the nutrition education around it, showing our clients that how to use the dry beans, how to soak them overnight, or you can put your frozen fruits in a smoothie and giving them those new ways and new ideas and providing them with a recipe so they can do it at home. And our last goal is to provide and network services relevant to our clients. So we have the photo ID program, which provides our clients with a WIC-issued ID to use at all our centers. Also, we have a client kiosk in our waiting room, so our WIC participants can go on WICHealth.org and complete their annual nutrition education requirements through online videos. So everything is very specific for our WIC population to help them thrive. Tal, um, I, you, you started on this path, but we're going to give our listeners a PhD in food and nutrition. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the difference between, for instance, a food pantry like Sharon talked about and the WIC Center. I mean, obviously you mentioned it's tailored to moms and children, and it sounds like it's a little more hands-on and some additional services. But, but what's the difference in the experience if I go to one of Sharon's pantries versus a WIC Center? So that's a great question. Um, so our WIC food and nutrition centers are a unique shopping experience. But in order to shop at a WIC center, you need to have the orange WIC coupons that's issued by a local clinic in the Chicago area. And so in order to come in, you have to go to a WIC clinic first to get the benefit, and then you can shop with us. Unlike our pantries, they are open to all that may need food and we're just serving a specific population and we do cross network with our pantries for our WIC clients who are also struggling with food but the big difference is you have to have the WIC coupons which are orange. I'm wondering sort of similarly to Sharon's experience what are you seeing in terms of increase? Is there is there an increase and what is that looking like for all of you? So, yes, we've seen an uptick in our numbers of our WIC participants shopping to redeem their benefits during this time. Um, And they've been so grateful. Just like Sharon said, thank you for being open. Thank you for being here and just having the items available. Most of our WIC clients also have SNAP benefits, and they've seen the extreme hoarding at the grocery store, making it difficult to get some basic needs. So they're coming to use both benefits and coming to WIC because they know we have food. And it is so vital and important that they have that, especially being at home with their children all day where normally their child receives, you know, a meal at school and now you have the babies at home and the older children at home. So it's essential for the whole family to have food and have uh, family meals and you know, make sure that they're getting the nutrition they need. Um, We've also made some accommodations that you'd see in any other retail experience. We have the plexiglass barrier by our registers. We have the markings on the floor to indicate where the client should stand and wait during checkout. So, and we're, you know, practicing our routine cleaning of the stores and our bathroom facilities. And all our efforts are just to keep our clients and our staff safe. So we can continue to serve and our, con- and our 
clients can continue to shop for the foods that they need. Great. Um, Sharon and Tal, can you both share maybe a little bit on the the personal professional front, um, how you're both doing? We know you're putting in a lot of hours and your your teams are putting in a lot of hours. Just how how are you faring and how do you keep everyone's spirits up? Well, in the family state, um, what we're doing is just trying to really kind of, because we have such grateful clients, such clients who, you know, are, are kind of, that's what keeps us going. That's what keeps us knowing that we're needed and knowing that folks are depending on us uh, really gives us a good boost. This is a difficult time. It's a difficult time to keep ourselves safe. It's a difficult time to try to keep clients safe and just different than doing things. So sometimes, you know, when change happens, it can be, uh, you know, uh, it can cause a little riff as to figure out how we're going to make this change happen. But actually, the staff themselves have been wonderful. They've been, you know, motivated and uh, staff for the most part has been coming in and willing to give up their time. This has also has been a time I think that we have stopped and had an opportunity to do a little bit more reflection to be able to actually see our faith come to light. You know, a lot of times before we began to serve in a lot of our sites, we stop and we have prayer. And during that prayer, that prayer has kind of changed a little bit. That prayer is not only praying for our clients as much as we usually do, but also kind of praying for ourselves and trying to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves. This is a time that we we could actually, you know, things just kind of go. We spend so much time taking care of the client. But uh, we also are kind of trying to be mindful of what we do to take care of ourselves as well. But it's an exciting time in a lot of ways, you know, that we know that we're just happy to be here for them. Sharon, I love that. And I I know that um, I've seen you in action with your staff. And I know that what you're saying comes across in terms of people who are who are really, truly willing to serve. I, I, I have been blessed to be able to see that unfold. So well done, Sharon. And Tal, I know that that's the same for you as well and Mm -hmm. your teams, that folks are working really hard. What, you know, in the last minute or so, what have you been seeing as well? And how are are folks staying positive and optimistic in the WIC arena? So they have just, you know, like Sharon is saying, being motivated. This is part of our core values of stewardship. We are stewards of what we do so even though there are trying times like before there were snowstorms now it's covid we understand we're essential and we are there for our our clients so i'm seeing more thank yous and people are more gracious but our staff are there on the front lines as soldiers and they are ready to serve and they know that this is why we're here. We're here for our clients, and this is a special time of need where they um, need us. So we are there to serve them. I love that, and and truly thank you to both of you for everything you are doing for people. You know, food is essential, and also the dignity of people is something we talk a lot about at Catholic Charities and also here. So thank you for being real witnesses of that in the world. And I would just like to make sure that folks know we are, as Sharon said, we are definitely in need of food. So if you are able to, please visit our website, www.catholiccharities.net, and you'll see where your closest food pantry is, and please Please, please think about dropping off or donating. 
Yeah, we'll also take prayers, as you heard <laughs> uh, Val and Sharon mention, you know, staff, volunteers, clients. Um, as, you're, as you're saying your prayers and recognizing frontline workers, please do remember those in human services. Um, they are essential at this time and uh, are doing really fantastic work. I would also add that, you know, the after effects of the pandemic um, will mean that uh, people will need food and that helps a lot in deferring other expenses. So thanks to all of our listeners today. Marie, so great to have you back. So great to be back. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. We encourage you to go to Catholic Charities' website to see how you can support their ministries that impact the lives of tens of thousands of people in Cook and Lake Counties. Just go to catholiccharities.net. That's catholiccharities.net. Stick around. In a moment, we'll hear from our Focus on the Liturgy team about celebrating the Easter season while observing current restrictions. Back in a moment. There's really nothing quite like participating in a virtual event, and Catholic Charities has a great one for you to consider being a part of this spring. The 2020 Blossoms of Hope will take place on Sunday, April 26th. Attendees will log in free of charge from their laptops or desktops at home. Instantly, they will be connected to hundreds of the most compassionate people in Chicago. Blossoms of Hope will feature powerful speakers, moving tributes, and enjoyable online games, all dedicated to honoring those who have been lost to suicide. It will be the annual gathering of those who believe in and support Catholic Charities Lost Program that has been working for over 40 years to help survivors of suicide deal with the grieving process and move forward with hope. Experience how a virtual event can bring people together in the most inspiring way. To learn more, call 312-948-6797 or visit catholiccharities.net slash lostbrunch. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 9.50 a.m. and 9.30 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. Focus on the liturgy this week centered on the theology and spirituality of the Easter season. Co-hosts Timothy Johnson and Todd Williamson discussed how Catholics can experience the richness of the season of new life despite stay-at-home orders. Timothy, happy Easter to you. Happy Easter to you as well. We are uh, we are doing this remotely. I am in the studio, and you are um, not, <laughs> but on, <laughs> but on the phone. And um, we are hosting together again. We're here every fourth Wednesday of the month, and of course, this is Wednesday of the second week of Easter. Um, just barely into this. Uh, this this profound season of new life, and obviously that will be the focus of our show today. Every every time we gather, every time we broadcast, we break open and uh, look at and discuss and unpack the various elements of the Church's 
corporate communal public worship life? And, and what an opportunity uh, in this unique time that we're in to break open the Easter mysteries. Oh my gosh, yes. Uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the experience of the Easter mysteries, <laughs> which are usually the, uh, the, the liturgy of the Triduum over the course of the three days of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, uh, th- those those are what we refer to as the Easter mysteries. And Timothy, this year they were a little different. Um, no, I need to say that again. This year they were a lot different. <laughs> they were very very different. Uh, for let me ask you, how did you uh, how did you celebrate Triduum? Um, well, here at, uh, at LTP, we actually did a retreat online this year, and so between that and gathering. Um, virtually with uh, family and friends to pray morning and evening prayer during the sacred triduum. Um, that's that's kind of what I did. Um, that reflecting on scripture and just trying to engage the liturgy and the liturgical text in whatever way I could during those days to break them open. Oh. Use them in a prayerful way. Wow. How about you? Yeah, uh, everybody. Right, everybody celebrated uh, the triduum and Easter Sunday. Um, everyone celebrated it uh, virtually this year. Uh, there were parishes in the Archdiocese of Chicago that did um, stream their Triduum yep. liturgies. Uh, the cathedral w- among them uh, was, th- and that was the community with which I prayed on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday was well. Um, so I, I, I was uh, participating at home in the cathedral stream liturgies um and uh let's 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 talk about this just for a minute because every listener anyone who is listening participated in the triduum exactly that same way Mm -hmm. um i i i found it um as i said profoundly different but there were there were aspects of the various liturgies over the Triduum that I found very powerful. For example, Cardinal Supic pausing in the entrance procession to look at an empty cathedral. And and you know that you knew immediately that's what he was looking at. Just really struck me. Yeah, I, I saw some images of uh, Pope Francis as well in St. Peter's. A similar kind of idea uh, as he's walking into the basilica and how empty that vast church is, and and I couldn't help but think not only about Pope Francis or Cardinal Supic or any um, uh, of the clergy who were celebrating these beautiful um, high holy days alone in a church and what that might and must have been for them as well, like the experience of holding the community in their heart in their prayer. Um, and celebrating on our behalf. Um, it, it, it's a profound image, I think, uh, to think about. Oh my gosh, yeah. And and then those of us who were watching, holding the community, uh-huh. holding the community and the presider and the ministers that we were watching, holding them in our hearts. Along, yeah, along with our families and friends and, and, and all of that. And it certainly provides a unique uh, experience of prayer and worship. I mean, one of the things I found myself doing um, outside of praying the Liturgy of the Hours and and watching the live-streamed celebrations and whatnot was reflecting quite a bit on 
the experience of Trudeau as a child. Um, and it's in, in a good sense. Um, you, you, you've, you've often talked about how you loved these liturgies as a child. Oh my gosh, yes. And um, so many memories came back kind of flooding in. And my, my sisters and I, we spent a little bit of time sharing on Facebook different uh, songs that we would sing in our home church um, at the vigil or on Easter Sunday morning, and just kind of reminiscing. So in, in some ways it was a theological reflection, um, but also communal time with family to really remember what it was, um, and continues to be really, um, just uh, transformed and, and hopefully renewed in, in different ways um, as I've gotten older and they've gotten older, of course. But it was a, a fun experience to uh, relive or recapture some of that and add that to my prayer, because I think it helped bolster um, my spirits a little bit about, okay, we can do this. Oh my we, gosh. We, we can get through this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I lo- I, I'm glad that you mentioned that, that whole idea of 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 um, really needed needed needing to have been bolstered during those uh, those days because because the experience was so different and and even even the liturgies were different. I mean for for all right. of, for all of the major liturgies of Triduum, Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, they were altered by um, the Vatican this year um, and then by the United States conference of catholic bishops a little bit more so um they were they were celebrated in a way they never had been celebrated um before uh for for example uh holy thursday night there was no procession with the blessed sacrament to the uh, uh to right. the altar of repose there was no feet washing there was no washing of the feet uh in in the holy thursday liturgies this last year I missed that. I missed that. Well, yeah, and as you say that, um, I mean, those are so profound in, in the lives of those who celebrate these liturgies in the lives of the Church, for sure. And one of the beautiful things I, I witnessed, especially on Holy Thursday, since you mentioned the washing of the feet, was that uh, many of my friends or friends of friends uh, were posting pictures of how they were celebrating Holy Thursday in the domestic Church in their houses. Um, outside of watching their parish liturgy live streamed or the cathedral liturgy live streamed, a lot of families I saw pictures where they were reading scripture together, and then um, with little kids and parents, like they were washing each other's feet. Oh my gosh! Um, and oh my some goodness. of the stories that yeah that were posted were how the parents were reflecting with their kids about what it means to do service, and I was like, well, this is really beautiful and profound. I mean, and and a unique again this this. And I think we said this in the last month's show, is um, though we're grieving and we're hurting during this time in, in some ways, it also could be a space that provides us a new space for reflection and engaging our faith in a way that, that maybe we, we wouldn't have um, without the opportunity to be shaken from our, our routine. Um, and I love that image of those families uh, gathering. I, you know, even on Good Friday, I saw pictures of folks posting that where they put a cru- their you know, sort of family crucifix um, on the table, and they were gathered around that, praying again the scriptures present, or they lit a candle. I actually have on my, my table um, a candle that um, has the risen Christ on it that my good friend LaDonna Herman made almost 20 years ago for me. And um, I only use it during Easter, and I light it you know, for morning or evening prayer, 
and uh, you know it's handmade and it's beautiful and those kinds of things are, are what can draw us back um, into those memories, um, but also into the the real celebration of of this season of this time. Our thanks to Tim and Todd, and you can hear that entire conversation by going to radiotv.archchicago.org. That's radiotv.archchicago.org. This Thursday's radio program was about pandemics, epidemics, and the church. Holy Name Cathedral Rector Father Greg Sakowitz and co-host Mark Teresi talked with Dr. Edward Gordon, an internationally recognized historian, researcher, and author. What would be your opening remark, Edward, as we begin this whole thing with the uh, coronavirus 2020? Well, first of all, as a historian, I want to help all our listeners today to get a perspective on what we know about pandemics from the past, the recent past, and then maybe in other programs we'll go further back. But you know, in history, there are, no, there are not winners and losers, but there are consequences. And we need to look at the consequences of what these pandemics do, and then take the perspective that, you know, folks, there is hope, mm-hmm. there is a future, this will end. And we need to do our utmost first uh, in healthcare, and then uh, on the pastoral level to help people to renew their faith. So let's go back to 1918. You know, my mother was a little girl then, and she told me stories of how she got sick with the Spanish flu and her sister and my grandmother, her mother. They got very, very sick. And at that time, uh, in 1918, 1919, 500 million people worldwide were affected, mm. infected with the Spanish flu, all right? And in the United States, uh, there were about 26 million people out of a population of 105 million, 25% that were infected. Mm. Ultimately, 675,000 people died from the flu in different waves. And in fact, people died more in the second wave than they did in the first wave. When was the second wave, like 1919? Uh, Yes, 1919. And it was very uneven because as some cities kept their restrictions on for a long time, others lifted them, and then the infection and death rate spiked. All right? Was St. Louis one of those towns that really enforced stay-at-home? It did. And as a result of that, uh, St. Louis actually started earlier than other cities like Philadelphia uh, and New York and Boston. And as a result of that, their infection rate was lower. But even a better example, if you want to look at this, is San Francisco. They kept their controls on from September of 1918 through May of 1919. As a result, the the deaths were reduced in that city by 90%. Now, I want you to also understand that they didn't have the controls that we have now. Yes, there were masks, there was some social distancing, but they didn't have, as we are developing now, additional drugs to help relieve some of the stress on people's bodies when they got infected. Ed, you talked about learning about the, from the consequences, two things. There is hope, renewing our faith. Talk about more about that Spanish flu. What specifics and then what we can learn from. Okay, well, first of all, 
the the social distancing and shutdowns were practiced, but they were very uneven. Now, remember, we're talking about uh, a a death rate in Chicago of 1.1% of the population of the city of Chicago died. All right? Now, Chicago had, at that time, around 756,000 people within the city. 8,500 people died in total. Mm-hmm. Now, let's just take a look. I'll give you an example of this. Now, Cardinal Mundelein had restrictions. However, the, he did stop all of the sacraments being given, such as confirmation and baptisms. But Sunday Masses were still held, but they couldn't be any longer than 45 minutes. And, Greg, you only have five minutes for your sermon. Oh, he brother. laid that on there, so I want you to keep that in mind oh, in the my future. Lord. So there are positive consequences. <laughs> That's right. Now, it's something to learn from. <laughs> but uh, Mass was held, and they aired out the church for 15 minutes between uh, Masses, and they sort of used disinfectant. Well, because of that, the death rate in Chicago... I'm sure, was somewhat higher among people going into those churches and attending those masses. Mm -hmm. And masks were used, but they weren't as widely used as we're seeing now across the United States. So, uh, and the churches and the Sisters of Mercy, uh, the the, uh, Daughters of Charity, they worked in hospitals throughout the United States. Religious orders did nursing duties uh, in New Orleans and St. Louis and in Chicago and in Dallas. So the church did a great deal to try to help in this pandemic. Now, Edward, again, back up for a second. Mm-hmm. What was the population in the city of Chicago in 1918? Uh, approximately, uh, it was... Uh, uh, just a moment. Seven hundred and fifty-six thousand. Okay, so three quarters of a million. Limit. And how many died in the? Uh, Eight, Eighty-five hundred, which is one point one percent. Okay, one point one percent. So pandemic. Okay. Yeah. You know, right now, I'll give you. We within Chicago, there are two point seven million people in the city. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, approximately thirteen thousand five hundred people have been. Uh, infected at this point, all right? Okay. And there have been 569 deaths. That's just gone up slightly uh, since yesterday, but I don't have that exact figure. Mm -hmm. Now, if we have the same death rate, uh, right now it's 2.7 million, that would mean 68,000 people uh, would become infected, and 30,000 people would die, Mm -hmm. all right? To get 1.1, correct. That's right. In Chicagoland, there's eight and a half million people in the suburbs and the counties around uh, the city. That would be uh, 2.1 million people would be infected, and 94,000 people would die. Now, those numbers certainly are not acceptable. But we can tell you again that what we do know, what we learned from these pandemics, is that social distancing is important. And that as it's lifted, if it's lifted too quickly and too broadly, the infection will spike and more people will die. Can you repeat that again for our listeners? That sure, just so, of course. Yeah, I think if that's social important. distancing and the quarantine is lifted too quickly and social distancing and other sanitary conditions that are being enforced now are lifted too quickly, more people will be infected in the second wave, and people will die. 
But now, you know, Edward, I have this question, two-prong. People are starting to say to me, you know, Father Greg, open up the cathedral, let us go in and pray. And number two is, what makes this so different from another flu? Flu is flu. Are we overreacting? Well, the, the chief difference right now is this. I got my flu shot, and Elaine did, mm-hmm. so we wouldn't get it. 40,000 people die across the United States in a normal flu season right now. Some actually got the flu shot because even the vaccines aren't perfect, but the majority won't. Very few people will Mm -hmm. uh, contract the flu. We don't have a vaccine for this. There was no vaccine in 1918. uh, There are efforts, and if today you read in the Wall Street Journal how they could speed up Uh, the process to get a COVID vaccine. But remember something. If a vaccine is brought on too quickly and it's toxic, Mm -hmm. it will kill people or it won't be effective. All right? Mm. So uh, to open up the cathedral now uh, would require everyone wears a mask, everyone would be distanced, and you'd have to control the number of people that enter the building. Because even though you can seat 1,400, you have to make sure that you don't get that many people in the cathedral. Now, right? I, can I ask you a question? So as we're going through this, I'm learning a, a lot. We well, all you, are, Mark. You learn from history. There's no playbook. Right. You learn from history. So, Ed, you're a historian. You know this stuff. How are you and Elaine living this out? What, 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 what are your behaviors that you're embracing during this pandemic to say, you know, I learned, I'm a historian, I learned, here's what we're doing, and I would just encourage other folks to do do this. Well, I will say that in the modern era where we live today, we are surrounded by a great deal of noise, a great deal of distraction. Uh, do I need to actually have an update every hour of how many people have gotten sick and died? Mm-hmm. Do I need to read, reread, and re-reread every story of people who have survived or who have died? These are very tragic mm-hmm. stories, mm-hmm. and they're also uplifting stories. I talk to doctors and nurses, and they tell me their stories. However, We are living through a period of time that will end. There is a tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And if we continually concentrate on the negative and not the positive, is is the glass half full or half empty? Will the economy recover? The answer is, yes, the economy will recover. Mm -hmm. And it's going to recover because people will work hard to make it recover. Mm -hmm. And the best thing to do is to keep our morale up and our optimism up. These are difficult days. Our parents went through the Great Depression. Our parents went through the Second World War. We have had other national disasters. Look at 911 in New York when that hit on that day. People rose to the challenge. I see people doing that now. It will take time before this ends, but it will end. And at the same time, we have our faith to help us. Greg, you have a question. Yeah, Edward, you're doing a phenomenal job in just connecting the present with the past. One quick question. With the Spanish flu in 1918, 1919, what happened in Philadelphia with the Spanish flu? The city was out of control with dying and death. Well, uh, first of all, Philadelphia inaugurated a lockdown earlier than some other cities. 
And as a result of that, the number of people who got sick and died in Philadelphia was less than it was. I'm sorry. I'm talking about St. Louis lockdown. Philadelphia didn't. In fact, they had a big parade right before they Mm. locked down, and that caused all the numbers to spike. Whereas St. Louis locked down earlier, and uh, their rates were lower. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, San Francisco uh, kept... Uh, the quarantine going for a much longer time period, and as a result, uh, their death rate was much, much, much lower than other major uh, metropolitan areas. So in many ways, with Philadelphia having a big parade, I think, regarding the war ending or whatever it was, would that be equivalent to our country back in late February, Mardi Gras in New Orleans? Yes, that's right. Any large gathering of people today is going to transmit that virus. I think the the part that scares me the most, well, a lot does with this whole pandemic, is Mark Teresi here could be COVID-19 positive, feel terrific, no symptoms, nothing. Give it to me and put me on a ventilator. And he would ask, I wonder how Greg got COVID-19. Or, you know, Javi, our engineer, could be COVID-19, he's young, and be test positive and walk around interacting with people, you know, infect 20, kill four, and not even know it. I've never seen a flu where you can go someone, no symptoms, and somebody else to ventilator and dies. Well, remember something. We have no way of testing anyone right now that is universally available Mm -hmm. so that we can test you and you can test Mark and me. Chris, now I'm sitting here. Uh, remotely today in my uh, library talking to you on the phones. So you can't get me over the phone. We know that. All right. Mm -hmm. But we need tests for for everyone. But remember something. Once we have a test and we decide, well, today Father Greg is free, then Father Greg meets somebody, Mm -hmm. and tomorrow he gets infected. So that test is only valuable for really a limited time period, depending on how you isolate yourself from others. All right? Um, And also, if we, uh, there are going to be tests coming out now, which will test your blood and to see if you have some natural antibodies Mm -hmm. that protect you from the COVID-19 flu from this pandemic, this mm-hmm. epidemic, really. And the, uh, again, that's good, but we don't know how long that will last in your bloodstream so that you will be protected from that. Remember, until recently, this virus didn't exist. There, w- w- the, the research on this is just really starting now. So we were totally unprepared for this because this is a very new virus. Mm-hmm. So we don't have in place the medical precautions or the medical treatments that we need, particularly the vaccine. And until we have a vaccine that's widely available, we will see flare-ups of this disease. And how significant those flare-ups will be, will be to the degree we practice protective measures. Thanks to Dr. Ed Gordon, Father Greg, and Mark for such a timely discussion. We close with a reminder that you can attend Mass online by visiting our website, archchicago.org. We have daily Masses from St. James Chapel at the Quigley Center, 
and Sunday Masses in English, Spanish, and Polish from Holy Name Cathedral. That's archchicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish-language Mass at 10 a.m., and Polevision for televising the Polish-language Mass Sunday at 9 a.m. and again at 3 p.m. Thanks for listening to us every Saturday morning on Relevant Radio, 9.50 and 9.30 a.m. I'm Jim Dish for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Please reach out to family and friends during these trying times and stay safe, everyone. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.